was so successful for these that we ended up acquiring a company that does just this, builds sales calculators, really slick ones for companies. So it was a company called Alinean that we acquired a couple years ago. You know, I just recognized that, in my opinion, was a part of the future of selling was this, you know, we weren't doing as a company, Mediafly wasn't. You know, people would ask, well, how much money are we going to make if we buy Mediafly? And usually my answer was, well, how about we just give it to you for free for six months and then you'll know. So the ability to upfront quantify the value of the product was something we struggled with, right? So now we're good at it. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Carson Conan. He's my guest today. He's the founder and CEO of Mediafly. But before we get to Carson, I just want to say a few words about this episode, because with the release of this episode, it marks five years since my producer and son, Alec, and I launched this podcast. Now, at its launch, the podcast was called Accelerate with Andy Paul, and we really had no idea what we were doing. But we learned a few things along the way, and here we are five years and more than 827 episodes later, going stronger than ever. So I'm so grateful for all of you who have supported the show every step along the way. We're also so grateful for our guests who have given their time to help us make all of us just a little bit smarter every day. Okay, back to business. In this episode, I talk with Carson Conant about a range of topics. And we first start off talking about his family business and his connections to the legendary Earl Nightingale. Now, Earl was the real deal. He was an early pioneer of the personal development movement. And I remember listening to his cassette tapes in my first car while driving between sales calls. And my favorite, actually, was his session called The Boss, Why Your Customer Is in Charge. Now, this talk is easily 40 years old at this point. So for everyone who thinks that the balance of power between buyer and seller has shifted just due to the internet, well, keep in mind, the buyer has always been in charge. Carson and I also dive into the current state of sales enablement. We talk about whether we're enabling sellers or just enabling sales processes. And we get into what pieces are missing from the current sales enablement mix, pieces that if added would truly enable all sellers to perform at higher levels. So a lot of fascinating insights there. Uh, before we get to that, before we get to Carson, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Carson, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. A pleasure to have you here. So for people who aren't familiar with Mediafly, heaven forbid, tell us what you do. So we're a sales content management platform. Um, so essentially, we're the place where marketers will upload and manage all of their sales collateral. They'll distribute it to their sales organizations. Then the sales teams will present and share out of Mediafly. And then ultimately, all that stuff gets tracked back and, and um, gets back over to the marketers so they can measure the effectiveness of what, what sales content's working, what sales content's not working. Um, and then they can iterate on that and kind of continue on that loop. Um, so essentially our job is to help, you know, help sellers, um, you know, present better through, through better content and help marketers understand mm -hmm. what that content is. Got it. Got it. So I, I want to spend some time first talking about uh, sort of the family business, uh, yeah. Nightingale Conant. So yeah. maybe for people who aren't familiar, tell them who Earl Nightingale was. Yeah, so Earl Nightingale was my grandfather. He was, he and his partner Earl Nightingale were essentially kind of the godfathers of self improvement, um, at least in the audio space. So they um, they published authors like Deepak Chopra and 
Wayne Dyer and Brian Tracy and uh, Tony Robbins, you know, all the names you'd think of when you think of kind of classic sales and um, kind of self-improvement and professional mm-hmm. development. Mm-hmm. Um, so primarily audio started back on the record and then it became cassette tape and then CD and then everything now digital. And I, I tell people stories. So my first job in sales, which was ages ago, and uh, I was driving a hand-me-down car from my great aunt. The car was like 15 years old. Didn't have a you know dime to buy a car with. But I had a cassette player. And on calls, I was listening to Earl Nightingale tapes. Oh, yeah. I think it was, think it was the, uh, the boss, I think, was. You know what? The boss is my favorite um, message that he has. So he, uh, I actually, when I worked for Nightingale Conan, I republished a bunch of kind of the best segments from Earl Nightingale. Um, mm-hmm. And the boss was one of my favorites. So when I started MediaFly, that whole concept of your customer will will buy everything you ever own, and if you treat them well, um, you know they'll pay, they'll they'll, they'll do right by you. Um, it, it's been a core essence of of my company. That's so interesting that you you know you know that name as well. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, again, this <laughs> in, in my generation of people that were going up is yeah, Earl Zig Ziglar, yeah, Brian Tracy. I mean, these were. These were the names, you know, self-improvement, if you were sort of into it. That's, those are the people that you were listening to. And we were, as I said, listening to them on calls between, uh, or on, in our car between calls. So we're yeah. out. That was, uh, yeah, early, early education. So, yeah, I, I, it's funny. I looked at the library online of, of what Nightingale Conant offers. And, yeah, to that point, I'm, you know, fascinated by the names that are still there. I mean, this classic content, you know. Earl Nightingale himself, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, um, you know, classic content, enduring content, I guess. Is, but I'm sort of curious how, like, sales are break down by age group for that type of content. I mean, are the, are, you, are the younger generation still inspired by Zig and Earl? So it's interesting. So, you know, they sell most of their product now through Audible, and it, it continues to just stay at a pretty consistent place. Um, and it's interesting, the classic stuff actually sells the best. So, and they'll kind of repackage different things together in different mm-hmm. ways, different topics across different authors, and they'll do kind of these best of things. Um, but I would say it's, at least for what Nightingale publishes, the the stuff that's kind of the classic stuff continues to still be some of the best, um, best performing. I And I think it's still the best, right? So um, it's kind of timeless. Um, you know, every once in a while you'll get a, you'll get a reference. I remember I listened to a Roger Dawson program once and he talked about the newfangled answering machine, which, uh, <laughs> which you know, kind, of, kind of shocked you out of, you know, but if, if a lot of the authors did a really good job in not mentioning things like that, that date themselves, if you'll notice that um, like Earl Nightingale won't mention very often, very rarely will you ever mention how much a salary is, right? So you don't end up dating, you know, dating right. yourself. You know, whereas if he said he made a fortune, he made fifty thousand dollars, right? It would it would ruin the the, the connection. Um, so yeah, so the, the, you know they still do a lot. They've they've started kind of re-recording some of them, you know, with um, with new talent or you know it, a lot of those folks were 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 men, and so they're they've been re-recording some of them, and you know from from with women, so that's been helping um, mm-hmm. different different languages and things. So, um, but I still listen to Earl Nightingale. He's my favorite. I still listen to Earl Nightingale. You know, every year. Um, the strangest secret and a couple of others like the boss, um, just on a regular basis. Yeah, I brought it up just because I there's such a what do I want to call it. I choose my words carefully here, but but I you know I find this this uh, notion that there's a modern seller, right? There's, this is a distinction people want to draw. Well, in a modern sales organization, modern sellers, 
and and it's really sort of a euphemism, I think, and used as one, sort of saying like, yeah, you know, technology is handling this, and yeah, we don't need to be quite as human as we need to be before. It's not as much about that connection, and which I think is completely and utterly false and wrong and and self defeating. And you know, gentlemen like Earl Nightingale and Zig Ziglar. Yeah, it was classic stuff. I mean, what they talk about in terms of of developing yourself and developing relationships with your customers is mirrored by what smart people are selling saying today, uh, and it's just it's timeless. I mean, it's, you talk about you know the boss why your customers in charge is. I just interviewed a uh, an author on my show, Robbie Kelman Baxter wrote a book, uh, The Forever Transaction, and. She's talking about, you know, you want to reach that sort of single signal moment where uh, a buyer transitions from being a customer to a member, right? From a mindset yeah. perspective. And that, that's really what Nightingale was talking about. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard that, that program. Um, but I, but I love that, that saying is really interesting becoming a member. Um, you know, and I do, and I do think that's, that's the boss, right? I mean, the boss yeah. is, you know, yes. if you if you can treat these people with just such respect and and, and connection, yeah, they you know, um, and and I, I always loved the, sta- the saying that most other companies won't, right? So that I think there, mm-hmm. there was a piece of the boss where he says, if you do it this way, you're you will surpass a lot of your competition because not everybody will, um, which I've just all and that's been part of our tenant since the beginning of MediaFly. Um, and we found it to be true, right? You think it's obvious. You you think that everybody's <laughs> going to treat their, you know, their their best customers, you know, even some of their you know not best customers with white gloves. But I, I, I for some reason I see that they don't sometimes, which is fascinating to me. Well, but isn't that sort of true? Sort of in two levels. One is when the whole personal development business, right? When you think about it, is is, and this is a question that gets raised all the time: is is are sellers today more invested or less invested in their own development than in the past. And and again, you get a, a spectrum of answers. I, but in general, I think people sort of come down on the side of, well, they're sort of less invested. Even though we've got you know, millions of podcasts and blogs and da-da-da-da. So again, I'm not really sure you know, what the real answer is. It's sort of hard to tell. But um, yeah, it's just... Yeah. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's a good question. I haven't really thought of it before. I definitely would say, you know, if you think about, you know, a couple of generations ago, um, or you know, a couple of decades ago, there was a there was a. It seems like the the star salespeople did a lot of their own self improvement, you know. Um, and you wonder if I, I, you know, I don't know if how much of that's being done today, or is it just that it's being done in really small bite sized pieces, you know, through blogs and podcasts and that kind of stuff, and it's not. You know, it's not as much of like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna immerse myself for the next eight hours of a program, right? Um, is it just more bite size? I don't know. Well, I think that's that's an interesting question though. Is, is part of the the question, I guess, is is yeah, I think the information consumed in bite size pieces more often, but can you really benefit as much unless you immerse? yourself in it. And so whether it's a program or other, in my case, I use the example times of reading a book. Yeah. I don't think there's anything that beats, and actually there's been research on this is that reading books makes a difference, right? It's, it's different than reading a blog. You, you have this experience, I guess this extended experience and connection with this content. 
uh, like you would with an audio program or uh, an online training program that that yeah is not going to be not going to be replaced by just listening to this podcast, which of course everybody should, but um, or you know reading a blog article. Right, right. Um, yeah, you also think about just the amount of windshield time that salespeople had before because they didn't have Zoom, they didn't have all these other technology, they didn't have cell phones. So you had a lot of windshield time and you didn't have a lot of things you could do, right? You could listen to the radio, you listen to a couple cassettes. That was, you know, it's kind of all you had. I feel like when, when, when the cell phone happened, I mean, being in that business, I was there for about almost 10 years. When the cell phone happened, it, all of a sudden it gave people that are on the road a whole other thing they could be doing, right? So that was, that was a big shift. And then when digital happened, it was like you had an infinite amount of things you could be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so so now all of a sudden, the amount of I feel like that windshield time for a for a professional salesperson was was a good amount of time for learning to kind of improve them themselves, and it, it was also a just a it felt to me like it, it was much more of a battle back then. You know, I mean, it was it was a hand to hand combat in every I felt like <laughs> salesperson, right? Um, well, I, I wrote about that just last week actually, in a, in a post is like, yeah, I I knew my competitors' names. Yeah, you know, I, right. I recognized them by sight. You know, we had, if we crossed each other in the the lobby, uh, you know, it's like I knew who they were, and I talk about. You know, I took great sense of satisfaction knowing that I was the last appointment of the day because if I was the yep. last appointment of the day, I had the inside track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny, and it was personal, right? As my boss says, in the context of the story, my boss talking about, you know, if you lose a deal, it's basically the competitor reaching into your pocket and pulling money out of it. Right. That's, that's right. how we felt about it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, I still feel like that when I lose a deal every once in a while. But, um, yeah. Well, but it, it gets back to the point you're talking before is, is, is what are you prepared to do, right? To, to get better. Because it's, it's, you know, you were talking about more a competitive product basis, but it's in a company basis, but it's really true as an individual is, is yeah. I look at the difference between winning and losing in sales as being a matter of, I call it the 1% difference. You know, you have to be 1% better in some dimension to win. Yep. And, yeah, you know, if you ask ask a seller a question, you know, how much did you win that last deal by? <laughs> it, well, they say, well, we're cheaper. No, 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 just percentage-wise. Mm-hmm. You were know, 100%. You won. How much did you win by? Yeah. No idea, right? How can you? We can't quantify it. Right, right. That's a good point. Yeah. You, you went home with the gold medal, but you don't know how far ahead you were. Yeah. So you just had to assume you have to be 1% better. So what's that? It. In high school, and my track coach and cross country coach was, you know, if he thought we weren't working hard enough, he goes, "Well, how hard do you think your competitors are working today?" Yeah, you, know, you quit after five miles; they're probably running six. What do you think? Right, right. Yeah. And I was like, "Well, I guess I could go run six or six and a half, right?" Because I want to be better than they are. Yeah, very true. So it's like this is this is the part I just wonder. Sort of long winded discussion to get this point. It's like, yeah, are people motivated enough to think about in this context? I just have to be. One percent better. What do I have to do to get one percent better today compared to what I was yesterday? Yeah, you know it was so interesting too. In having been in that business for so long, the people that really adopted this thinking were the ones that were not necessarily the ones that needed it. So it was kind of counterintuitive. Um, it was always the folks that were the poor performing sales reps were not using the the, the, the motivational materials or self improvement materials. It was the ones that were performing well. So it seems it seems kind of counterintuitive. And I remember my grandfather told a story about, I can't remember if it was Studebaker or something. There was, a, there was an auto company that was going out of business. So they packed all the executives of Nango Conant and they drove you know, around. The, they were in Chicago, so they drove over to Michigan. Um, and they said, we'll give you free products. We'll do all these different things. And the company said, we don't need all your crap. 
So they, um, so they, they got, they were all dejected, got back in the car and drove over to, you know, Chrysler or Chevy, one of the other brands that was, was doing great. And they bought about a million dollars worth of product. Um, I mean, unbelievable amount of product. They were already the ones winning, right? So the, mm-hmm. the company that was struggling with sales had, had set, you know, were the ones that said, I don't need it. And then here you have this company that, um, you know, that their, their competitor that was already winning bought a, bought a million dollars worth, um, so I always love that story. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I find myself now selling to sales organizations and I, I see the same thing. I see, you know, I'll, I'll go talk to multiple companies in the same industry. And the one that is their stock is declining and the company's struggling are the ones that don't buy. And then you'll find a company that's, that's, you know, in full transformation and rock and roll and th- those ones will buy. And it's, and it's, I find myself in that same position my grandfather was in, which is, it's really hard to convince the ones that don't get it to get it. Well, I wonder, so it sort of brings us back a little bit to the topic of the day. We're going to talk about some sales enablement topics. This is, I was reading an ebook from another sales enablement vendor recently and, and sort of paraphrasing, they had this line in there to just stop me, is, is that saying sort of the, the purpose of their tool was to be able to reduce the reliance on the judgment of the seller. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, well, isn't that interesting? Because, <laughs> because to your point about you know, hey, if we can't get our bottom guys to bottom people to to get better, uh, we're just gonna work around them. And and I thought, wow, coming from a sales enablement matter, I thought, really, shouldn't the goal of enablement be just the opposite to enable sellers to better exercise their judgment? You yeah, know, about the questions yeah. to ask and and the tactics and strategies and understanding, you know, the real true needs of the buyer and so on. I mean, it's 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 funny. It's like we've come 180 degrees. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because I am not a natural salesperson. So I think I am. I love. I'm a product person. I'm a relationship person, but I'm not a great salesperson. And um, so well, I. What What in your mind is a great salesperson though? So I should. Good point. So I think um, I define a great salesperson as somebody who delivers the sale when they say they're going to, and at the and and within the time frame that they're obligated to deliver it. Right. So somebody who a great salesperson has a quota, and they figure out how to get the deal across the line. You know, collaborating with their customer within that time frame. Right. Mm, um, okay. I find a lot of people who are great at relationships, and the deal will come in, but it might come in a year late or three quarters late. You know, um, and it's and in some cases, I think the natural tendency is that you don't want to push on the on the customer. Or in my case, I, I do way too much show up and throw up. I love demoing the product. Um, I love giving it away. <laughs> I, you know, I I always struggle to charge for things um, just because I love the product so much. I'm like, just start using it for free. I'll figure out to charge you later. So, um, but I think you know, it all come for me. It all comes down to in some degrees, it's been, you know, lack of confidence and ability to quantify the value and then convey the value. Um, and what I've, what I think is neat is when, when, when an enablement solution can help a rep like me sell better. Um, because it's, you know, I, um, cause I have a lot of the other capabilities, but if you can help, you know, if I can help, um, if you can help guide a conversation to be more succinct, you can help it keep it a little bit more about the customer and not less about the product. Um, and I think content can do that. So we kind of come from a content background um, and our, mm-hmm. our role in enablement. So, um, so, so I'm, I'm kind of a recovering show up and throw up salesperson that I, and I, you know, I love using a solution when it can help me sell well. Um, 
so I, you know, I, I think, um, so I don't have to be like you're saying, um, sold around like that, like the example you gave there, right. Um, I can be, I can be up level <laughs> to sell well, um, with, you know, with, uh, the right tools. Yeah. Well, so speaking of the tools then is, is, and this sort of a bigger topic, but one that a lot of people are talking about is, is, yeah, how, how do we enable sellers to perform up their, their potential? And it's interesting, the whole sales enablement space sort of started around this idea of content management, but it's, it's expanding quite a bit beyond that. But in general, I just wonder, you know, what, are, what are we missing in terms of enablement? And this is across, you know, we're talking a little more globally. What are we missing? Because, you know, we get the CSO insight reports. Everybody talks about, you know, 50% of reps throw up their hands because only 50% of reps are making quota or less. And it's like, yeah, everybody gets hysterical about that, but I'm not sure it's any different than it's ever been. Right. Um, right. But if, given, given that that is the case, at least seemingly from the data, yeah, are we wasting a lot of time and effort trying to change that? Or are we just trying to do the wrong things? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know if I have the answer. Um, what I what I can say is I've seen companies do some really innovative things that take that bottom half and make them help them perform more like the top half. So I've seen it, I've seen it being being done. Um, you know, PepsiCo, I think, was a good example of a company that we've worked with that did that. Um Miller Coors was as well. Um so and what were um, the keys for them to be able to do that? So um in the case of uh, case of PepsiCo, I think um, part of it was, you know, they, they wanted everybody to adopt Challenger as kind of the core methodology of selling, which is hard to do when you have, you know, 10,000 salespeople. It's hard, it, you know, there's only so much training and that kind of stuff you can do. So some smart people within Pepsi realized, you know, we can guide the sales conversation through content, so through the way that we organize content. So they actually revamped their content. So we would follow Challenger and start with, you know, um, you know, um, challenge, you know, drive insights was kind of a, a bucket of content. So rather than everything being super product oriented, they started to orient content around insights and then, you know, and then it kind of threw out through the challenger method. Um, so that was just, that was one thing, how, how they surface content. The other thing was just um, the ability to get access to high quality sales content in the moment versus having to have prepared ahead of time to get access to things was a big one. So all of a sudden you found people that were more confident to talk about things that were outside of kind of the, the sphere that they were really knowledgeable about. Um, so that was, that was, I mean, PepsiCo did a bunch of things, but that was, those were a couple that really stood out to me. Um, the thing that Miller Coors did, which I thought was really neat was they, they figured out that some of their top sellers were using a, a very quantitative way of selling. So rather than saying, Hey, bar restaurant, you should swap out this tap handle, which I know is a craft beer. And that's really cool for my beer, for a Miller Coors beer. Um, you know, that's, that's a hard putt when the craft beer is really cool, but mm -hmm. what some really smart people started doing is quantifying the, the profit you would make if you were to swap that out. So yes, maybe it's not as cool to go from X to blue moon, but look, look at how much more profit you make over the course of a year, because you make more money per, per poll because it, it costs less and you're going to sell more of it. Right. Um, and so all of a sudden you took, they took, you know, tens of thousands of people and all their distributors and turn them into value-based sellers, right? Or quantitative-based sellers, which would have been really hard, I think, if you had to train everybody and do all these different things. So they, they used content in a tool um, in concert with an with a, with a objective, a transformation objective. And we see a lot of companies that do that. They really want to take people from being kind of transactional and make them more consultative and more quantitative. Um, and so that to me is a good example of how you can take a, a, somebody who's just not confident talking that way. They either are not 
capable of it because they, you know, they, they don't understand the quantitative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or maybe they just don't have the confidence in it. But so now if you give them a tool where they can ask a couple of questions and based on that, they can get some positive feedback from the customer and kind of go in a little deeper, becomes a little bit more, more fluid. Um, so anyway, so, so that, you know, that variations of that are my favorite thing in the world when we get, when we see a company that wants to do that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I've seen it work. Well, and the thing that's interesting about those examples, both of them are, you know, we're talking about something that's not a complex sale. You know, this is not this is not selling a you know a complex technology system or a piece of SaaS software. It's it's yeah, you know, it's a business to business trend, more a little more transactional, but it's personal. It's it can be reduced to uh, quantification, which is really you know some I would let me use a better word. It required even though they shared these insights with the sellers, it required them to attain a certain level of business acumen. Right when you're right. talking about the profitability of of the customers and so on, which I think is yeah, I think they're fascinating examples. Yeah, you know, one of the things that that is complained about oftentimes and <clears throat> with B two B sellers complained about by the the buyers is look, I'm talking to these sellers, they just don't know enough about business to be able to help me. Right, I'm a CEO. I'm talking to this you know. 24-year-old punk, and and I was in that position. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I was 24 and I looked 16 and yeah, trying to sell a half-million-dollar piece of equipment uh, system to run their business, accounting system to run their business on. And it's like, yeah, we got a, we got a, we got a little bit of a problem here because, <laughs> yeah, what do I know about business to help them? So right. having that tool, as you talked about, yeah, it's, it's a it's it's not just they're reading a script. It's it's they they themselves are learning the reps, right? About right. It. and yeah, you go do that ten times, you're gonna begin to understand and put it into context, and you develop right. some business acumen that's that's rele- relevant to what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And we had we actually ended up we it was so successful for these we ended up acquiring a company that does just this builds sales calculators, really slick ones for um, for companies. There was a company called Alinean that we acquired a couple of years ago, right? Because you know I just recognized that this in my opinion, was a part of the future of selling um, was this, you know, we weren't doing as a company, Mediafly wasn't, um, you know, people would ask, well, how much, how much money are we going to make if we buy Mediafly? And usually my answer was, well, how about we just give it to you for free for six months and then you'll know. Um, which, you know, that, you know, <laughs> Back that to your takes, earlier comment, your sales reps don't want to bring you on sales calls because you're getting rid of six months of their commission. <laughs> yeah, I hate when I do that. Um, so the ability to upfront quantify the value of the, of the product was something we struggled with, right? So, um, we, now we're good at it. Um, so it, it can be something that a company can learn. The other thing I think, you know, with all this sales name, you mentioned that sales name started with, with content, which I think is true. Um, and we all, if you look at all the major players, we started in the, in content and then we, we all spread out into other things. And I feel like almost to a disservice of content for most of the companies, Content has not gotten any better. It's still linear, boring, still very flat. You know, there's been a couple of us like Mediafly and a couple others that are invested in, in content, but a lot of them invested in, you know, how do I create uh, like wizards in order to spit out a little bit more of a personalized, boring, flat piece of presentation, right? So at least it'd be personalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then you start to see sales enablement broadened into a lot more of like ne- next best action around the seller and that kind of stuff, which then collides with companies like Clary and Outreach. So you're, you know, I think that the lines have been blurred there and actually Forrester, you know, is breaking up the, the space in, you know, sales, what used to be just broadly sales enablement are, are now sales engagement, sales content solutions and sales readiness. 
because training was another thing. If, if I, I would tell people I'm in sales enablement and they'd say, oh, you create training. Um, and so it, it just meant such different things for different people. So what I think you're starting to see now is, um, you know, you're seeing a, a couple of uh, companies that are doubling down on content, going back to the roots and saying, um, you know, the content can be better. It can be more interactive and dynamic. It doesn't, it, you know, it should not be linear. Um, if somebody comes into my office and presents in a linear way, it, I'm like, this is terrible. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll call them out on it and say, um, we actually, we actually gained a couple customers that way. Um, and, um, <laughs> cause they were selling, you were selling, they were selling to you and you, they were selling and, I, and we'd be like, that was, we'll, we'll buy from you, but that was terrible. I mean, that was, you know, you, <laughs> you're, you're digging on your, on your computer, trying to find a video. Um, you know, you tried to play something that didn't work the presentation, you know, I asked, you know, I, I remember a good example. I had a company, an office supply company come in and they were coming in to present this cool solution they had for doing walls. And I brought my CFO to the, to the meeting and they had no idea the CFO was going to show up. And so he started hammering them with, well, how does this compare to if I were to use, if a contractor was to build this? And they were totally unarmed to have that conversation, right? And the pre, you could just see them get flustered. Um, and that was a perfect example where the ability to pivot and be able to bring up content that's specific to the CFO and be able to quantify some things. Um, I feel like that's what, that's what content does. Um, and so we've actually shifted back and, 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 and it's worked tremendously well. The more we double down on content, the more we sell, which is really interesting. So when you say double down on content, meaning what specifically? So just, so how, how does, so how do, well, kind of two areas really one is, so how do marketers create content that's more interactive and dynamic, right? So um, you think about, you know, animations, things like that, that can be real cheesy in PowerPoint, but if done right, it can allow a story to build mm-hmm. in, a, in a way, right? Um, so rather than going through a very boring PowerPoint presentation, how do things, how do things build? How do things have some, have some, just some animation to keep people engaged? And the other thing is, how is it, how do you make it interactive so that at any point in time, I could go deeper, I could jump over to something else. Um, it's fluid, right? So if you ask me a question, um, we can move in different directions. So we've created a bunch of authoring capabilities and we've got right. partners that help do that so that, um, the, a company should not walk in and, and present in a flat linear way. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is just leveraging things like video. A lot of salespeople are terrified of using video because it, it, it fails them in the field. Um, but video is, is useful. You know, now I'm not talking about bringing up a three minute video and saying, we're going to watch this whole thing. Like, you know, you live in school. It's like, we're going to watch right, right. We're, you know, think about how, how babies were born. Right. But, um, but, you know, but a short little video on a certain thing, even if there's no audio and running the background is something that is super powerful that, a, that if you look at most of the sales enablement solutions out there, you know, you can have video, you can have flat presentations. They don't usually live well together. Um, but if you put these things together, a, a marketer can author a much better story that the sales reps will use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and then, so that's one thing. The other thing is just is tracking, you know, marketing has almost no visibility into what sales content was actually used in the field. I mean, it's really remarkable. If you look at what marketers have tracking on, I mean, you know, we might be talking about six cents, actually understanding which keywords people are looking for, what landing pages, how long do they spend on those landing pages? We have so much data about the lead that was formed. And then we toss it over to sales and you know, almost nothing, right? (laughs) They don't know what was presented. You know, the sales reps will give them anecdotal information. So, so we built this cool stuff that can track. We actually proactively figure out when a meeting happened, who it was presented to. Um, and then we track it all back into CRM. Um, and this is less about Mediafly, more just in general, what it gives marketers is that same level of like Google style analytics to, wow, this particular page is, is heavily correlated to deals closing or this particular mm-hmm. 
topic or content. So if you think about much creating much more interactive presentations and then validating those things are working and then using that to get more budget and create more interactive content, um, you know, that you create this kind of self-fulfilling loop there that, um, so when I say double down on content, it's just, we're doubling down on that loop. Um, you know, better, more rich content, validating it's working, better, more rich content. Um, and, and then we're partnering with folks like, you know, Zoom and Outreach and other companies so that, that you know, it's best in class integration from a data standpoint. We're not pretending to do those things. Right. Yeah. Well, so last question for you. The, and so I'm a big believer that, that individual sellers basically can only improve at sort of the rate at which their direct manager improves. And so we talk about sales enablement, but I really never hear people talk about sales management <laughs> enablement. Yeah. Management improvement. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so just wondering if you deal with that at all. You've heard anybody talk about that at all. It's not, but I just took a note. That's definitely an interesting topic. Um, I would say we we do deal with it to some degree. I, I would actually say in some cases it's probably marketing trying to bypass that limitation um, by marketers to your point, which mm-hmm. is, um, um, you know, there, there is a chance, I, I guess, I think the, the good and bad is if you get a great manager, maybe you've got better sellers, but then you, you if, if a bad manager can create bad sellers and you've kind of created a bottleneck there, right? So either you have to get deploy tools to make sure your managers are, are doing really well. Um, or, you know, what, what I've seen, have, a, a corollary to this would be distributors. So when I think of companies like Miller Coors and a bunch mm-hmm. of others, that you've got distributors that sell your products. You have a lot less influence on, you can't force them to do as much as you can if they're your own salespeople. So it creates a really interesting uh, need for an enablement solution. And if, if you can get it to work in a, in a distributor organization, it means you've really got something, right? Because they have to want to use it. Uh, has to ha- add enough value so they kind of pull on it. And a lot of cases, the distributors have to pay for some of this stuff. Right. Um, and so it's not like a other sales enablement solution where it's like, you know, we're taking your portal away. You have to use this thing. Um, so it's all, you know, all stick, no carrot. Um, so I think I, I think the same sort of thing is in play when you look at um, your own field people, which is that regardless of the manager, and the manager does, I think you're right. I think there actually is a whole enablement layer that should be done for managers. But the end salespeople should be able to sell more confidently and better assisted with great content, interactive and quantitative, right? Yeah. Um, and then the manager can either get in the way of that or can help accelerate it. <laughs> well, but, but to a point I think you were alluding to earlier, though, is that, yeah, if you have, let's say, a, you know, your average sales manager has seven direct reports, um, yeah, and you have a distribution of good to you know across the range of, of perhaps capabilities in that that uh, seven people. Is if it's a bad manager, they're all going to be less than they could than if it was right. a good manager, right? So that's what I'm always sort of fascinated is that you know we spend all this money on on twenty billion dollars a year on sales training, supposedly in the United States, figure I saw, and of which we spend again the estimates, the best estimates I could find is we spend less than 5% of that on training managers. And I'm like, well, if the managers are really the key to enabling the success of the individual through coaching and so on and so forth, shouldn't we flip that ratio and spend you know, $19 billion a year training sales managers and $1 billion on salespeople? Yeah, it's interesting. In, in, doing, in running MediaFly for about a decade, I can honestly say I don't remember a single deep conversation about managing, a, managing 
or about enabling managers. So that's interesting. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I think they, they can really be a catalyst or a bottleneck. Um, and there should be more focus from the enablement solutions from a, you know, training, you know, all, all three of the pillars, right. Content training and, 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 you know, readiness content and, um, and it kind of insights and, and, um, and that side of things, um, there should be a focus across all three of those on the managers. Yeah. Yeah. There should be. Well, that's part of the conversation we're having and trying to encourage here. So appreciate you yeah, taking part in it today. So, uh, Carson, if people want to connect with you, how can they do that? So the best is LinkedIn. I, I live on LinkedIn um, or Mediafly.com. Excellent. Well, Carson, it's been a pleasure. We'll make you come back sometime and do it again. All right. This has been great. Thanks. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Carson Conant, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or possibly a review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.